This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. So tell me, off the top of your head, how many Taylor Swift songs do you think you can name? Welcome to New York. Um, uh, you belong with me. Yeah, I knew yeah. you were trouble. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Lavender something or other from the new album. There's one that's called, uh, also from the new album, gosh, I forgot, but it's all about like I'm dressed for revenge. I forgot the name. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Are you dressed for revenge today, Vincent? Here's a, here's, here's a secret for you. I'm always dressed for revenge. It's always about my- It's your revenge body. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Critics at Large, a new podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Alex Schwartz. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me, Vincent Cunningham. <laughs> oh, he did it. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Uh, the three of us are staff writers at The New Yorker. Each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. And it doesn't feel right to do a culture podcast without talking about, you guessed it, Taylor Swift. Um in part because I don't know how you guys feel about it, but we totally can't escape Taylor, right? I mean, I feel like every time I look at my phone, I see clips from the Eras tour, which has, uh, you know, been dominating social media since it began back in March and has now been extended to go until November 2024. That's not a mistake. Um and later this month, she has a documentary coming up in AMC theaters exclusively about the Eras tour for those of us who haven't been lucky enough to to go see it live. Her re-recording of uh, her 1989 album is dropping in a few weeks as well. And lest we forget, in the midst of all of this, uh, her love life mm. has constantly been making headlines. And you know I'm into that. <laughs> On the Daily Mail, page six, Dumois, what have you. Uh, it's never ending. So I feel like this is someone who it behooves us to discuss because, uh, you know, we just can't get away from her, even if we wanted to, which we don't, Swifties. Uh, anyway, uh, are you guys f feeling uh, like myself in relationship to Taylor's omnipresence in our culture right oh, now. Oh, just swept under a wave of Taylor. I'm just sitting here thinking about songs I even just forgot to name, like Shake It Off. How could I have forgotten Shake How It Off? How could you have forgotten Shake It Off? Which for a while was at the forefront yeah. of, of not just the culture, but indeed my personal yeah. listening um, habits. Also, you know, I, I once not so long ago was obliged to remember a code that involved the numbers 8-9. And I was like, oh, Taylor Swift, 1989. Oh, that's interesting. And it's like, you know, okay, my own birthday is 1987. <laughs> like, you know, I could have thought like, oh, birthday plus two. No, it's like, I know Taylor there's Swift is 1989. Yeah, yeah, there's already one that works. It's Taylor. And I have never forgotten that code. <laughs> I hope nobody tries to crack your 
I won't say what it's the book. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh-huh. uh, Vincent, what's your what's your feeling towards Taylor? Yeah, I mean, for reasons that are totally separate, I've been watching football more than I have in maybe a decade. But like yeah. the last two weeks, I've watched games where the true main focus of the game was Taylor Swift. Yeah. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, which who employ Travis Kelsey, her mm-hmm. new love interest, yeah. um, apparently, uh, yeah. played my uh, favorite team, the New York Jets. Yeah. How much attention is given to Taylor in like in the in the in the broadcast of football, it's literally it's like enormous. every yeah. every fourth shot. Sunday night football. Oh, and yeah, she's here. Taylor is in the house, and we. Thank uh, and so, obviously, we're all super aware of Taylor Swift just by virtue of being alive. Uh, but we wanted to hear from a true expert in the field. So today we have our first guest on the podcast, Amanda Petrusich. Amanda covers pop music for the magazine, and she's written a ton about Taylor Swift's music over the years. And she also went to the Eras Tour, which she's going to tell us all about. Hi, Amanda. Hey, guys. Hi. Amanda, what's up? Hey, Amanda. This is very exciting. Oh, my, oh God. my God. We're absolutely honored. We're honored. So just to just to start, um, would you, Amanda Petrusich, call yourself a Swifty? Sure. Yes. This feels like a trick question somehow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but I would. I think over time, I have really come to cultivate admiration for, for what she does for her as a songwriter, certainly as a performer, as an extraordinarily famous person. And when would you say the shift happened for you when you were like, OK, I'm I'm in? I think it was around 2014 when her album 1989 came out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That to me is a kind of platonic ideal of a commercial pop album. And also the way, I mean, one of the things that, and I'm sure we'll talk about this quite a bit, I, I think there's probably a few forces at work here in her sort of absolute domination over popular culture, which feels mm-hmm. vast and to some degree unprecedented. But, but I think possibly the biggest piece of that is Taylor herself and this almost sort of terrifying expertise she has at at kind of nurturing and stoking a parasocial relationship with her fans, which for me really began in the 1989 era. Uh, I wrote in the column that I wrote for the magazine about the era's tour. I call it this you guys energy. And I feel like that's when she was <laughs> yeah. she was sort of hitting the you guys really hard. It's this kind of chatty, you know, hyper intimate way. Yeah. She very convincingly, I mean, convincingly addresses, you know, a football stadium of 70,000 people. Uh, I think there's also an element of that that's really present in her songwriting. I mean, she knows her way around a hook. That's kind of undeniable. But lyrically, I think she writes directly to these very uh, kind of tender, very vulnerable places. You know, how we feel when we have a crush on someone, how we feel when we're jealous or insecure or kind of overcome with desire I feel like most of us have never felt more insane than when we're, you know, falling in or out of love with someone. And and that's sort of where she lives. You know, she's there. Mm-hmm. She's in that right. pocket. Mm-hmm. Like she's she's right. putting mm-hmm. words to those feelings that are really, I don't know, sort of inscrutable and private and strange and intoxicating. And, and that's such a big piece of how she writes and kind of how she connects with uh, the people who love her. I know, Amanda, that you brought a little playlist to share with us today. Your own era's tour, as it were. (laughs) You are a Virgil into the world of Taylor. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Well, the first song I I was hoping we could listen to is Cruel Summer, uh, which was Mm. first released in 2019 uh, on her album Lover. Hang your head low in the glow of the vending machine. 
We're just, we're, I mean, I yeah. said before that Taylor's like a wave that has washed over all of us. Right now, we are riding the wave in the studio. We are jamming. Yeah, yeah. we were uh, very embarrassingly, for me at least, dancing. Oh, singing. I felt no embarrassment. Like arms, <laughs> I, I, eyes closed. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, fe- I felt alive for the first time I was in, in years. I was in my element. <laughs> what can I say? The energy is high. Uh, Come on. <laughs> So this song was first released in 2019. It seemed, by the way you guys reacted to it, that you are all somewhat familiar with it, which is interesting because it was Definitely. not it was not technically a single from Lover. But it did re-enter the Billboard charts again this summer, four years later, uh, as a huge sort of dominating song. Taylor opens the era's tour with this jam. Uh, it was a co-write with Jack Antonoff, among others, including Annie Clark, uh, who you may know as St. Vincent. She plays a little mm-hmm. guitar on the track. Uh, But this is certainly a song that I think works on the level I was talking about earlier, where, you know, we tend to think of Taylor as this sort of buttoned up cheerleader type. But I think she actually writes really well about sex. And, and, And this is a song for me about the kind of big, you know, gaping maw of like human carnal desire and and how much it sucks to want someone, (laughs) especially when you're not entirely sure if they want you back. But Amanda, would you say it hurts so good? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because clearly, I mean, it's it's about it's about an excruciating feeling, but it's also in some ways an intoxicating feeling, as anyone who watched us, you know, groove in these office chairs in the studio can can say, you know, it, it's 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 an it's there's an energy there that's not just about feeling despondent, obviously. Yeah, it yeah. feels like a high. The energy yeah. feels like a bit of a high. OK, what's the next one? Next one on the list. So maybe we could listen to Karma featuring Ice Spice. And this is from her her recent album, yes, right? Yes, this is from 2023's Midnight's uh, The Till Dawn edition. Everyone you burn just to get there It's coming back around And I keep my side of the street clean You So, of course, I'm not realizing that I know this song and that uh-huh. yes. not only do I know it, but it's on every single Instagram reel and every TikTok right. that I have recently encountered pretty much. Yeah, that sort of low-key ubiquity, I think, of of a lot of Taylor songs is incredible. I mean, that sort of ties into these sort of broader conversations about the monoculture and whether we're all sort of hungry and desperate to be listening to the same thing at the same time. Uh, to me, this is not... This is not a Swift song that I love. I think this actually is a song that maybe highlights a little bit uh, of what can be kind of grating about her. For me, this is a song really, I I think this is a classic Taylor move. It's a song about how good her karma is and how bad everyone else's karma is. And I think, (laughs) you know, we all know you don't get to be a billionaire and have bulletproof karma. Uh, 
you know, Swift has caught a lot of flack over the years for kind of constantly portraying herself as a, a victim. I think Swift's haters love to sort of bring mm-hmm. that up, that you you cannot sort of self-stylize as a victim and an underdog while also being one of the most famous mm-hmm. and beloved pop stars of the 21st century. And I, I think by and large, she had kind of moved away from that idea. Mm-hmm. So for me, karma was this sort of brief and unwelcome return to it. Uh, I mean, that's just speaking about the lyrics. I, I I think otherwise, like it's a you know it's a she writes great hooks. It's a fun pop song. Again, like I'm I love Ice Spice. I think she's rad. I think she's so cool. Would you say it's also like the rap thing of it? The rap of it all is it like evidence of sort of? And I don't know how to say this without seeming derogatory. I don't mind this as a as a characteristic, but other people mean it badly. But is it evidence of a kind of calculation? Like, oh, I want to sort of break into this new market also with this. Yeah. Or I want to open up my fan base one more inch or whatever. That's what it feels like to me. I think because musically, I don't find them particularly sort of simpatico. Uh, you know, their voice, I Spice has this sort of wonderful kind of laconic, um, cool vibe. It just, to me, it feels, again, just oppositional in many ways to what Swift does and what Swift does best. So yeah, it did feel a little bit like, oh, okay, like who's the kind of coolest rapper working right now? Sure. And I think Swift has sort of rightly suggested that there's a lot of, uh, you know, misogyny or sexism, internalized misogyny, perhaps even on my part, you know, this idea that like, when we see a male artist being, you know, calculated or being sort of savvy in terms of the business decisions they're making that overlap with creative decisions, you know, we will say, oh, baller, you know, but when we see a woman do it, there's like (laughs) some resistance, like, oh, gross, like she's so calculated. Right. I I think that's fair. I mean, I think that's a a argument Swift herself has made and in fact sung about. uh, And I think that is Bear. You know, of, of course, like, of course, like she she should be trying to get the kind of coolest young artists on her record. She should be doing it. It's exactly what she should be doing. It just this particular one didn't work for me musically. Uh, I have one more song I want to play for you guys, and it is Blank Space, which if you know any Taylor Swift songs, there is a good chance uh, this is one that, you know, I will go on the record now saying I think this is maybe one of the most perfect pop songs ever written. Uh, the symmetry of it, I think, is incredible. The specificity of her phrasing, the kind of the punchiness of the vocal, the precision of her delivery. I think it's impeccably performed. And it's also kind of funny. Uh, there's a line in the song, Darling, I'm a Nightmare Dressed as a Daydream. Great yeah. line. Great line. You know, <laughs> yeah. game, game recognized game. That's a great yeah. line. Yeah. <laughs> Make the bad guys good for a weekend. So it's gonna be forever, or it's gonna go down in flames. You can tell me when it's over. Mm, if the high ones worth the pain, got a long list of ex lovers. They'll tell you I'm insane. Cause you know I love the players, and you love the games. We young and we're Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure we get Sorry. that for them. Make sure we get that for them. Let it out. You have to let it out. <laughs> no, I really you. feel like I'm I'm like getting like swift pilled. I was jamming to this one recently and to the music video. Oh, the, I like the music video too. What happens in the music video? It's 
so it's like an estate. It's Taylor dressed up, you know, in her in in sort of in just beautiful finery. It's a little bit mm. Downton Abbey vibes, I think. Yeah, um, at an estate with a handsome, faceless boy toy. Yeah, he's a boy toy. <laughs> and first, everything looks wonderful and perfect, uh. and the seduction couldn't be going off um, more beautifully. And then, as promised in the song, she does turn into a nightmare and becomes overcome with fits of jealousy and rage. Mm. And after, you know, painting his portrait, torches his portrait and cuts holes in his shirts and throws his clothes out the window and basically, um, you know, becomes a a nightmare. This was also, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Amanda, uh, around a time where she where Taylor has started to gain this reputation of being kind of like a quote-unquote crazy, crazy bitch, you know, in, in relation to her uh, uh, romantic relationships, right? Like post, like, Joe Jonas, post Harry, was this post Harry Styles, her dating yeah, Harry Styles? Yeah, yes, this was post Harry Styles, and, uh, post Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, um, and so she's kind of, like, responding to the critics in a way, being like, yeah, I'm crazy, I'm owning it, this is... This is who I am, and it's justified. In totally, a way, right? A very, a yeah. very Taylor move to attempt yeah. to reclaim the narrative, and she does it all the time, and she does it really well. Uh, yeah, and I, I think yes, we're seeing that here. She is sort of saying, "Okay, this is the story you guys think you know about me and how I act." Like, like, fine, I'm going to sort of embody that, and I'm going to turn it into this badass song and make a zillion dollars. Uh, it's a very, very Taylor <laughs> move. You right. have to applaud it. Yeah. Well, that, like it's that reminds me of the strategy that I think is native to the internet, which we call post through it or whatever, right? You like <laughs> that you yeah. you just continue to make content that like it's incorporates true. criticism and and it, it strikes me like this, it's like evidence of her like fundamental onlineness. Like if she's more aware of the the criticism criticism against her than anybody else. Yeah, and incorporates it. Into yeah, I'm afraid her. to publish this episode i feel like she's going to listen to it that, that's just what it <laughs> I'm seems also like getting a little nervous to be honest <laughs> <laughs> in a minute we're gonna talk about watching the eras tour not just from the stadium but also on our phones and don't worry we'll talk about beyonce too stick around Many put their hope in Dr. Serhat. His company was worth half a billion dollars. His research promised groundbreaking treatments for HIV and cancer. Scientists, doctors, renowned experts were saying, genius, genius, genius. People that knew him were convinced that he saved their life. But the brilliant doctor was hiding a secret. Do not cross this line that was being messaged to us. Do not cross this line. A secret the doctor was desperate to keep. This was a person who was willing to cold-heartedly just lie to people's faces. We're dealing with an international fugitive. From Wondery, the makers of Over My Dead Body and The Shrink Next Door comes a new season of Dr. Death, Bad Magic. You can listen to Dr. Death, Bad Magic ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. 
With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So there is tour. I want us to talk about it. And Amanda, since you're the only one here who has actually been on the ground, uh, I want you to take us on a little journey with you and tell us how it was to be there. Sure. What was the experience like? Boots on the ground reporting. Really like the sequin (laughs) platform wedges on the ground uh, reporting. Right. I, you know, so prior to attending the Eras Tour, the last concert I had seen in a straight up football stadium uh, was Metallica in Las Vegas. So my my first thought during the MetLife Stadium uh, in East Rutherford, New Jersey, was this crowd is so young and so Mm. sober. <laughs> and, and, and then my second, right. my second thought was everyone here looks amazing. I mean, it was like sequins, makeup, bracelets, you know, lovingly bedazzled, sort of bespoke, homemade, everything. Mostly I was sort of bowled over by the very almost kind of palpable benevolence of the crowd, which is not something you feel often in a football stadium. I, you kind of get the feeling that if you, <laughs> you know, if you were to suddenly sort of burst into tears, you would be comforted by several hundred people and they would be handing you water and handing you tissues and giving you hugs and, you know, telling you like, oh, he's not worth it. Like whatever it was, (laughs) I just felt the, uh, it it is a sort of warm embrace. I will say it's also a long show. It's well over three hours. It is incredibly choreographed. There are, you know, very few moments of genuine spontaneity, which I, which I think is probably tied to the sort of massive, you know, size uh, and demands of the production itself. I think, you know, for me, someone like me who kind of came of age seeing, you know, punk and hardcore shows in basements, I I think it took a little bit of work to understand this as a different kind of artistry or or to sort of understand it as like, I have not just walked onto the set of a Diet Pepsi commercial to to kind of see, (laughs) you know, to open my own mind to kind of understand Mm -hmm. what she was doing as Mm -hmm. uh, just, just on a totally different scale and then also, I think, preserving to some degree that that sense of intimacy that we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, that she, when she would address the crowd, I, I it almost felt like I was getting hypnotized. <laughs> it was like I, I sort of wow. knew intellectually, like she's talking to a crowd, you know, a, a football stadium full of people, 70,000 people. Why mm-hmm. does it feel like she's looking in my eyes and talking directly to me? I don't I don't know. I think that's a little bit of the magic and the mystery of her appeal. I don't know how she does it, but she does do it. I'm here to say she did it. I believed it. <laughs> I, I felt it. It felt great. You know, 
I watched the entire concert on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, one amazing thing about the show is that it works on like several different levels of distance. Like there's like the big screen that everybody can look at, but then you know if you're closer, you know there's there's Taylor herself in the in the flesh. Um, and so I watched the whole thing, which is like. As you said, Amanda, as long as a late career Scorsese f- film, it's, it is, it's The Irishman. It's so yeah. long. And I sat there yeah. in my living room, you know, yeah. taking it in, going to get water, whatever, you know. Right. Um, and, you know, part of the form of it, like you were saying, like the intimacy, because, you know, each era, meaning like each album, basically, because she goes through all of her albums or, or each like sort of moment of her career, I guess. Each era has a different vibe, costume, whatever. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of each of those little sets, she stops and talks again. You know, it's like mm-hmm. each one of them is kind of their own little concert. And she has these little like, oh, we're in a coffee house moment. She's like, yeah. And a lot of it is process, too. It's like, yeah, people were asking me, you know, I, I made I made all these albums in the last four years, but I didn't tour them because of whatever reason, you know, the yeah. pandemic, whatever. So, like, I just decided, you know, like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. I don't know. There's this extreme sense of collaboration between her and the audience. Unlike some other performers who are there to like wow you and be like, yeah, look what I can do that no one can do. It's her. It's like, look at all this stuff we did together. But at the same time, being incredibly impressively singular. Right. Right. So it's that combination uh, of on the one hand being like we're all in this together. But on the other hand, being this incredibly Serena William-esque performer right it's a different kind it's, it's not like beyonce who's like up there dancing like you know backup dancer level like amazing it's like yeah. it's not like that but it's like it is amazing like you know coordinate she's got this amazing physicality where she like sort of she sweeps her hand it's like almost like a stylized vanna white thing that she can do where she like she like casts her hand at, at the audience and it looks like she's like indicating at you she's like a swan up there it's a whole different thing yeah yeah <laughs> Exactly like a swan. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, I also think these two tours are happening at the same time. I mean, Beyonce's Renaissance tour is also absolutely huge. Yeah. You know, the the thing that strikes me about both Taylor Swift and Beyonce is people who go to those shows feel seen by the performer to such a degree that it seems like a communal experience. Um, like people come are coming out of these shows like looking and and reporting some kind of huge spiritual shift and change like there's something um huge emotionally happening and that specific aspect of it the way that this singular pop star or two very singular pop stars can make an enormous stadium of people many enormous stadiums of people feel affirmed to the very course of their being like it's fascinating that they're just two really big versions of that happening at exactly the same time right now. Do you guys think that we've seen moments like this in history before where there's been such kind of a massive um, adoration of a live performer uh, in in a way that's kind of like coming together at, at once? Well, people, a lot of people have drawn a Beatlemania comparison, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. certainly between the Eras tour and and the Beatles. I think Billy Joel said that Billy Joel. Yes, yes he yes, took his he young daughters. He took his to, young daughters. To, there you uh, have stop it. on the Eras tour, and he said the only thing I can compare it to is uh, Beatlemania. Right. So, on the one hand, this makes sense to me because you know. Girls fainting before the Beatles, screaming, absolutely screaming, and blowing out their vocal cords. But it also strikes me that these two things are completely 
opposed to one another, like they're, they're just on total opposite sides of the spectrum because, you know, the Beatles, young lads, um, <laughs> basically bringing sex to America along with Elvis in the official narrative, shall we say. They were adorable mop tops. Yeah, in the early in the early <laughs> 60s. And you have the and the phenomenon of, <laughs> you know, the phenomenon of the adoration of the Beatles is a phenomenon of young girls loving boys. And you're talking about the experience of having a crush. Um, and like going back to what Amanda was saying before, Taylor Swift is the young girl and singing to the this female experience of love and lust and heartbreak and doubting yourself and feeling yourself and all of these things. Um, that's really different than listening to the boy sing about his feelings. Like, it's the kind of opposite of the groupie experience. Yeah. And also, you know, of course, one obvious difference between then and now is that social media is is playing a role now, a very crucial role, it seems, in the connection between performer and audience. Certainly. Right? I, and I think, like, the interest, you know, at the— <laughs> Taylor Swift went through a breakup this summer, uh, as I'm, I'm <laughs> sure you guys know. And I think when her relationship with Joe Alwyn ended, the actor, uh, and we saw her dating again all of a sudden, I think, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm curious how you guys have sort of read and experienced that, that the interest in who she is dating and the intensity with which people seem to sort of follow those relationships uh, is wild. I mean, we're talking about unprecedented moments in pop culture. I feel like I can't recall people ever being quite so singularly and intensely interested in the romantic life of a pop star before this. I'm definitely interested. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm interested, but... I, I'm invested. Yeah. It seems like one of those moments where it's like um, you can harness this sort of parasocial, internet-fueled um, relationship or series of relationships to your good, and Taylor Swift seems to be a genius at that. But then there are times where it seems to get out of her control, where like she started dating this guy Matt Healy, yeah, um, and he's and you know he's he said certain things on on podcasts and things that people haven't liked, like sort of politically incorrect statements or whatever. And it all of a sudden the sort of like uh, beautifully collaborative Swifties became uh, they they sort of weaponized themselves against this guy that of course they don't know or whatever, you know. Um, and I'm not sure that that's the, the the effect that Taylor wanted to have. So it's like kind of, you know, riding a dragon. Like you don't it's know, a sword, you don't know right? exactly how yeah. it's gonna how it's gonna go. Well the thing that, you know, I think about also is Amanda, you were saying before how Taylor Swift is able really um, Taylor, may I just call you Taylor? I, I just want to drop. We've been calling her Taylor the I whole know. time. I know. I just suddenly got a little abashed and sort of was like, we are talking about Taylor Swift, the professional woman, you know, not my best friend Taylor or whatever. But right, we're, we're flirting with this. What's the difference? What's the difference? What's the difference? Tomato, tomato. So, you know, Amanda, you were talking before about how Taylor in her music really can articulate this kind of um, falling in and out of love. And it just seems like she's always in that place. Um, and that also, to me, is a huge contrast with someone like Beyonce, who famously has been with Jay-Z for, you know, basically the amount of time that Taylor Swift has been active as a musician. <laughs> and, like, you know, the big personal drama for Beyonce in her album Lemonade was about the experience of infidelity and getting through it and going through the other side. And now, you know, in her, these are both pop culture figures who fans call mother. Um, but, you know, Beyonce is a mother, has Blue Ivy Carter, her daughter, on stage with her in the Renaissance tour, is kind of like this actual huge matriarch. And Taylor Swift is, to me, really interestingly, still in this kind of, um, you know, like liminal zone of um, in and out of love. 
there is there is a sort of interesting current of almost suspended adolescence, I think, through her yeah, work. You know, that's which, what I which, think, right? It would be interesting to see what how her art changes, you know, as as maybe she sort of evolves away from that in in her personal life. If she were to sort of, you know, do all those kind of cliched, uh, you know, sort of grown up things, you know, marriage, kids, whatever. Um, I don't know if it would change the way she she writes or not. I, I really don't. It's an interesting question. So far, we've been talking about how the Eras Tour has seeped into all of these different parts of our lives. Is Taylor steering us into a new golden age of monoculture? And if so, how do we feel about it? That's in a minute on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like, holy f- <laughs> He just nailed the s*** <laughs> out of that. Sorry. And America Ferreira. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to, like, be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace, This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Now that we're talking football (laughs) and Taylor Swift and 70,000, you know, people strong crowds, um, is monoculture back? Are we all back to watching football and listening to, like, one artist? Can I just say something cranky for a second? Go ahead. So monoculture is one of these buzzwords that has just appeared. I don't know when it appeared. You know, I want to say the last 18 months and then someone will say, no, it's, you know, been around since whenever. But I kind of want to call bullshit on it. I mean, was hmm. like— Yes, of course, when the Beatles arrived, um, everyone, you know, when, when Beatlemania hit, like— Yeah, everyone was aware of it. But a lot of other things were going on in culture and the culture, and there have always been multiple valences of culture. I just feel like I wonder, like, okay, there's a little bit of a, like, backwards-looking, you know, sepia-tinted idea that we were all united under culture once, which I think is crazy and totally wrong. I don't think we were united under culture, but as someone who is in my 40s— I do remember a time when there was a sense, for instance, of mainstream and alternative in a way which I don't think we've experienced for the past, say, 10 years. 
Okay, I think there was a sense of like a stronger um, kind of like mass listening audience, and then maybe things that were somewhat more on the margins. And less kind of like me suddenly listening to, you know, whatever, Taylor, Ice Spice, but also like well, if that's, obscure jazz or if something. If that's the case, then an, an, an interesting critical shift has happened where if that is the case, mm-hmm. people used to really want to identify themselves as people of good taste by revolting against the monoculture. Definitely. I do think that there, there was a, a, a vision of alt and yes. punk and outsider that whether— or not mon- monoculture existed, that idea of being on the outside depended on the idea of there being a mainstream, something to react For against. Sure. But also, like, just mm. I just want to, you know, just sort of to clarify our terms, just to mm. think of what the stakes are. Amanda, I know you, when you were writing about Taylor uh, uh, for, the, for the magazine, you opened your piece with a kind of um, line about how critics are always complaining, bellyaching about the death of the monoculture. And... To you, what are the benefits of monoculture, of the way things were, quote unquote? Like, are are there any (laughs) or, you know, what's your what's your feeling about that? I mean, I think it's that idea of collective experience, which which feels like something that was decimated by the pandemic. It has been sort of decimated by interactions, human interactions that are now mediated through a smartphone or a laptop or whatever. You know, this Mm -hmm. feeling that we're really far away from each other in like a sort of tactile, fleshy way. Right. And mm-hmm. then maybe, yeah. maybe if we all watch the Super Bowl together, you know, there will su- and even you know, po- <laughs> politically things have been so divided. It just feels like, sure, this very corny, maybe sort of dumb, I, 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 but nonetheless kind of appealing idea that that maybe we could find a way to, um, I don't know, to share a moment authentically and and therefore have a point of kind of communion and understanding with with fellow man. Uh, sure, I mean, I mean the reason, yeah. The the reason I think that this is a little bit of nostalgic, you know, foofery is foofery. <laughs> no less. Yes. She pulled out the foofery. Yes. Nostalgic folderol. I mean, what is the word? Like, I don't want to go full bullshit. But the, the reason I think that this is a little bit of a nostalgic coating over reality is because – so I do think there's a difference between the idea of monoculture and mainstream. Like monoculture, I think, is, as Amanda is saying, the idea that people are enjoying something at the same time. Like Thriller, the release of the album Thriller, a monoculture event. Everybody is listening to Thriller. Like that album is everywhere. It Mm -hmm. breaks all kinds of records. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. undeniably Thriller is a monoculture event. Um, But that's not to say that like – you know, what I call Nickelback, like, you know, from the mainstream music of my, you know, own No, there's early, levels, obviously. Yes, there's, there's levels. levels. There's levels. There's so, levels. So monoculture, um, but the, you know, <laughs> Nickelback. Okay. <laughs> I went right to the... Wow, you really... You're hitting below the belt. That's rough. <laughs> I'm just saying what I'm thinking of what was mainstream, sure. you know, when I was when I was coming up and what you were likely to turn on the radio and hear, like, you know, sure. there you have it. Sure. But... Yes, like, you know, we are so divided. We talk about this. And this is why I think that there's this idea that once there was a culture. However, if you just look at things, this may be a little too in the weeds, but I happened to watch the movie Shampoo the other night. Hal Ashby's best best movie in the history of an amazing movie from 1976. It takes place in 1968. And there is something that happens with music in that movie that just made me think of this monoculture question. There is first... There, you, you get a scene of 
a party on the eve of Nixon's election for a bunch of California Republicans. And in the background is playing an instrumental version of Eleanor Rigby. Like mm-hmm. it is the Beatles, it is the Beatles, but it's been gentrified. It's been made into this like nice background instrumental, easy listening, easy listening mm-hmm. that everyone can say like, oh, I'm with the culture and how pleasant. Then they go to a wild hippie party that's taking place the same night and the White Album is on like full on and you're just in a totally different universe. And so it's like, even there, even when I think we think of the sense of, oh, there was a monoculture and the Beatles were everywhere, it could mean different things to different people. Now, I, I know I'm just being cranky and, no, you know. No, no, I think, of course it's true. Of course. Of course, monoculture, it never meant, like, <laughs> Sorry, everybody at the same time, at the same moment. I've taken us down an annoying moment. semantic route. No, 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 no. I, I totally agree. And I think, but I think, of course, I mean, 1968, like, what was more divisive than 1968? It's it, Of course, there were differences. But... I do think that there are certain moments that are happening that have been happening this summer that we haven't experienced in a while, for instance, like Barbie and Oppenheimer, you know, where it's like suddenly everyone is going to the movie theater and like dressing in pink, like where to an actual movie theater. And and Barbie is a real collision of monoculture and mainstream because it's Barbie. It's It's like a Barbie Uh doll. Yes. And suddenly this is happening. It's Taylor Swift. And Uh I have to say... All right. I enjoyed, Thank you, guys. Thank you for leading me back. I was really I just... enjoy <laughs> seeing it happening. And I also enjoy being like, hmm, maybe I'm kind of a hater about it. Like it's mm-hmm. bringing back my hater side in a way that feels comforting to me. Like, oh, my God, I'm young again. I can be like, fuck this bullshit, Same. you know, yeah. about things. So it's like, which I haven't felt in a weird way allowed to do. And I'm allowed because it's strong now. Yeah. It's strong in a way it hasn't before. So I don't feel like I'm kicking anything when it's down. You know, I feel like once again, I can stand on the margins more proudly if I want to. I For mean, there I, to be margins, there has to be mar- a monoculture. Exactly. Right. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Yes. So, so I feel so it feels like, oh, I'm yeah, it's it, it's taking me back and I'm loving it. I love that, Nomi. I'm with you on that. I love that. I mean, it's That's... like Amanda. You know, I think we're, I think we're, you know, about the same age. Or, you know, I think maybe I'm somewhat older. But, but it's, you know, we come from a generation where to hate was to live. You know, <laughs> and so it's and tattooed so, on my inner thigh. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. No, it's no, like I, I eat your love like hate. It's like it's it, it, it's sort of like okay, I'm I'm back in a place where I can kind of like. Yeah, I I think to me, this feels almost like maybe we're reaching some sort of tipping point or it's the you know, it's the apotheosis of this idea that's existed in music criticism for a long time of poptimism of like, yeah, Mm -hmm. we need to take pop music seriously. We've been unfairly dismissive and gatekeepery about, you know, and and, yeah, and I think we sort of chugged up that hill and maybe now we're sort of coming down the other side of the hill of like, I mean, I feel it, too. I feel nostalgic for the, you know, the record store days where I would be so nervous to, like, slide the CDs I was buying across the counter because the record store dude was going to think I was had bad taste. You know, I feel like now we've reached this moment where there is no bad taste. You can like whatever you like and you are empowered to do that. And I don't know. There's maybe there's a little something lost in that. I feel like we began in love and now we're ending in hate. Yeah. (laughs) So we've really gone through all the emotions. It's a ta- I, it's a Taylor Swift episode. I think, you know, I'm feeling – what's the word for what I'm feeling? I think the reason I'm being a little bit crotchety about this monoculture idea is that I wish I, – I wish I wanted to be among the legions. I really – there's a lot of 
Taylor's music that I enjoy. Um, and I'm hugely impressed by her as a musician and a performer. But she's not the one to speak to those feelings for me in her music. And I wish that I could just be among <laughs> my legions feeling the same feelings and feeling that because there is no ecstatic rush like being at a concert and having everyone yeah. sing the lyrics and you're singing the lyrics and you're merging not just with the performer but with all the bodies around you. I mean, that is ecstasy. That is pure joy. Um, and so I feel this sense of I'm just delighted that people can have that experience, and yet I'm wistful. Wistful is the word I'm looking for, because yeah, you know who writes really great songs about wistful stuff? Taylor Swift. It might be Taylor Swift. <laughs> you know, the, so much of the effect of like getting ready for this episode, listening to her a lot. Amanda's very well chosen uh, haiku of an era's tour. Those songs, uh, you yeah. really got us through the whole thing. <laughs> um, I'm I'm intrigued, and I think that she's on some levels, done this era's tour, like, here's everything I've done before to, like, get us ready for something that's coming. And so I do think I want to be along for the ride a little bit. Whether whether to, you know, in, in love or hatred, critique or celebration, I'm going to be there. Let's let's do let's do one Taylor Swift episode a year so that we can reevaluate this. Yeah, yeah, we can just do it <laughs> annually. <laughs> Until we see. die. Amanda, thank you so much. And we hope to have you back with us again soon. Certainly in one year's time to yeah. talk about Taylor Swift. Certainly. <laughs> and, see, and, see, and see what is what has transpired. I really appreciate uh, that. This was so fun. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, thank Alex. You. Thank you, Vincent. As always, a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Uh, and we'll see you back here next Thursday Ooh. for another episode of Critics at Large. Bye. 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 Critics at Large is a co-production of The New Yorker and Condé Nast Entertainment. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby. Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. We had engineering help today from Jake Loomis. And this episode was mixed by Mike Kutchman. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider following Critics at Large wherever you get your podcasts. See you next Thursday. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. 
Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.